Hello and welcome to the latest episode of California Dreaming. This is going to be a multi-part series, but I am going to do my best to keep it as quick and concise as possible. So we're going to skip the fancy intros going into each part and get right to the case after we take care of the usual business. Thank you as always for listening to and enjoying this podcast. You know that it is a completely independent, ad-free production And there are a number of ways that you can help support this show. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps give us more visibility. It pushes us up the charts and helps new listeners find us. You can recommend us in true crime fan groups on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter, comment, like, retweet, all the good stuff. Same things on Instagram. Just search for the show and it should be pretty easy to find. And if you cannot get enough California Dreaming, then you can subscribe to our Patreon where you can not only access dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses for as little as a dollar a month, but you will also be keeping the lights on and keeping the treat jar full, especially for Fred, aka Potato. This week, I'd like to thank Bridget C., Kathy L., Jess G., Semru U, I hope I said that right, it's S-E-M-R-U, Diane C, Angela, Teresa S, Sandra R, Jane M, Stevie T, Kristen P, Pamela G, Sharon M, Harini and Nate B for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge to the next tier or going to the annual option or for contributing through PayPal. I particularly want to thank Nate for an especially generous contribution through PayPal last month. So thank you so much for everything that all of you have done for the show. And if Patreon isn't your thing, like I said, you could throw a dollar or two or whatever that you can through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. And the sources for this episode include the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, as well as articles online, and everything will be credited as needed in the show and also in the show notes where you can find links to everything. So, all right, let's kick off California Dreaming's latest multi-part series. This is the tale of a girl boss and the Silicon Valley of Lies. Elizabeth Ann Holmes was the founder and CEO of the now-defunct clinical laboratory blood testing company called Theranos, a name that is a mashup of therapy and diagnosis. Some people have pointed out online that the name sounds a lot like the Greek word Thanatos, which is in mythology the personification of death, such as the Grim Reaper, But I'm sure it's purely coincidental and really has no deeper meaning than that. But when it comes to Elizabeth herself, she is undoubtedly a strikingly beautiful woman with large, gorgeous, yet eerily unblinking blue eyes. 
It's a stare that either goes right through you or it hypnotizes you. Whenever Elizabeth would be speaking to anyone, whether it be those who worked for her, those venture capitalists that she hoped would happily throw millions of dollars her way for her startup, whenever she conducted interviews, all the way up until the time she was made to face a jury of her peers, her long, fixed gaze became a part of her signature aesthetic. The stare without a blink drew people into her world. Either that or it gave people the heebie-jeebies. Personally, I find it to be a perpetual deer-in-the-headlights type of a stare. Like someone's mugshot after a particularly rough night. Someone who is in complete disbelief that they're getting processed into the county jail to sober up for the next 12 hours. The eyes are the windows to the soul. Human beings have the ability to look into someone's eyes and are able to infer feelings, whether it be love or sadness, forlornness, guilt, anger, deceit. Our eyes are one of the first things people notice about one another. We are sometimes especially taken by particular features of each other's eyes, whether they be big brown eyes, piercing blue eyes, warm hazel eyes, and that's my color, by the way, hazel. What do you see when you look at the dozens and dozens of pictures of a wide-eyed Elizabeth? Obviously, I don't know the woman, but that look that she has on her face all the time makes me feel like she's hypervigilant, operating at some elevated state of constant awareness at all times, almost like a look of fear. Of course, the stare is coupled with her smiling and speaking. The unblinking stare feels like it's at odds with everything else that's going on with Elizabeth because she is very engaging and captivating. Then her eyes become a way of almost putting her audience into a trance of some sort. And apparently it worked. A lot. People wondered whether the non-blinking is something that's just a part of Elizabeth's physiology or if it was one of several characteristics that she patterned after a man that she had tremendous admiration for the now deceased chief executive officer of Apple, Steve Jobs. He was known to also have a protracted stare that allegedly added to his magnetism. Elizabeth had also famously duplicated Steve's trademark wardrobe, consisting primarily of black turtlenecks and black slacks. Whether or not Elizabeth is doing the signature stare on purpose is going to be one of the enduring mysteries of the story. That, along with her voice. That voice of hers, often described as a signature baritone, a word that originates from the Greek word baritonos, which means heavy-sounding. Elizabeth spoke with a distinctive deepness to her voice that is quite unusual when you listen to her. 
I haven't watched a lot of videos of Elizabeth giving interviews or TED Talks or whatever she does. But the ones that I have, she definitely maintains a deep tone all the way through. But for many of us, the voice just doesn't seem to match. But like her unblinking gaze, her voice is just another one of her peculiarities. Or as some believe, a component of her meticulously crafted public persona. The first impression for most is bemusement when Elizabeth begins to speak and this unexpected voice coupled with her unyielding expansive stare that ensues. It can catch you off guard if you're not ready. Some who have worked for Elizabeth at Theranos have long suspected that it's all a put on. There are times when perhaps Elizabeth has let her guard down and employees noticed that she would fall into what seemed like a voice that was more natural, more of what one would expect a young woman's voice to sound like. Her tone was definitely an octave or two or three or four higher than her usual deep tone, this tone that she would unintentionally perhaps slip into. And it also tended to happen in social situations when Elizabeth knocked back a few drinks. But don't waste your time Googling around for some video or audio evidence of Elizabeth falling out of character. If any videos or audio clips were ever uploaded to the internet, they were expeditiously scrubbed from existence. So good luck with that. But all that being said, why in the world would Elizabeth want to Darth Vader her voice? Well, while she herself has never publicly addressed VoiceGate, her family has come forward and insisted that her voice is just like her grandmother's, that they both have a naturally low tone. I read an article on thecut.com that said faking one's voice is as weird and embarrassing as wearing a toupee because all it does is bring attention to your biggest insecurities. And if it is fake, then Elizabeth is going to have to keep up the charade forever unless she decides to come forward and admit that her voice is as phony as a Silicon Valley startup that claims that they've invented a machine that is capable of performing 300 plus diagnostic tests on a single nano droplet of blood. But I digress. Early on, I was accused of faking my voice when I started this podcast. I felt like it was mostly an attack on being a woman in a form of media that had been mostly male-dominated. I didn't think anybody was going around telling Nick and the captain or Mike Boudet to stop faking their voices. Nowadays, it seems as though, based on the charts that I've looked at recently, that there is a pretty even mix of women and men at the top which is great, even if they're not exactly your favorite shows. Is it embarrassing to be faking your voice? <sighs> I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it being embarrassing for Elizabeth. But then a recent little scandal came about in the last year or so involving the wife of recently embattled actor Alec Baldwin. You all remember that, right? And yeah, the secondhand embarrassment was strong. Back in December of 2020 is when this drama began. 
Most of us didn't know a whole lot about Ilaria Baldwin beyond her being married to Alec and having a whole bunch of kids with him and being into yoga or whatever she does. It was then she began being accused of cultural appropriation of the highest order, faking her Spanish heritage, faking her accent, faking her name, just faker, faker, faker. It was really painful to watch it all unfold. According to an article also in thecut.com, which now I've reached my limit on articles for the month, so I've had to set aside some time and download other browsers on other devices to read this particular article, but it was actually Amy Schumer who sort of caused the whole Ilaria hilarity to ensue. So sometime in December of 2020, Ilaria posted a picture of herself on Instagram wearing lingerie holding her then three-month-old son. So Amy Schumer reposted Ilaria's post. And every time I type the word Ilaria's, my spell check wants to correct it to hilarious, but that's hilarious. So Amy reposted Ilaria's post and wrote, quote, Jean and I wanted to wish everyone a happy holiday season. Enjoy it with whatever family members are talking to you this year. Well, that was apparently a dig at the unrealistic vibe that the picture exuded of how quickly Ilaria snapped back into perfect shape three months after giving birth. And I mean, no doubt, Ilaria looked and looks fantastic after having five babies in seven years. She and Alec do have a sixth child that was born six months after this three-month-old son. His name is Eduardo. That was born in September of 2020 by way of surrogate. So, Ilaria answered back with a video where she said, quote, there's like the whole thing of, oh, moms don't look like that. Well, some moms do and this mom does and I am included in the inclusivity. Well, it turned out that the message in the video was pretty much lost on many of those who watched it. Because Ilaria, who typically spoke with a distinctive Spanish accent, seemed to be speaking in a noticeably American-sounding accent. And one of the first tweets to kick off the cringe fest said, You have to admire Ilaria Baldwin's commitment to her decade-long grift where she impersonates a Spanish person. So yeah, ouch. As people began digging around in Alaria's history, they started seeing things on her website bio that said that she was born in Majorca, Spain, raised in Boston, Massachusetts. When she was on the cover of Hola magazine, the article said that she was a native of Spain and that her first language is Spanish. She said in an interview on a podcast that she moved to the United States when she was 19 to go to college in New York. But then the internet sleuths did uncover the truth. Ilaria's mom and dad, Dr. Catherine Hayward and David Thomas, they do live in Majorca, Spain, and have been there for about 10 years now. But before that, they resided in Massachusetts, and the family's history is in the New England area, and it goes back before the American Revolution. 
Alaria had once claimed that her mother was of Spanish descent, and this is not true as there is a video of her mom discussing herself being raised in Massachusetts. Neither of her parents are of Spanish descent, and Ilaria is an alumni of a private high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Cambridge School of Weston, where a photo of her in the yearbook lists her name as Hillary Hayward Thomas. Fellow students who knew Ilaria back in the day insist that she is a white girl, she had no Spanish accent, and everybody called her Hillary. At the time that all of this went down, Ilaria's IMDb page stated that she was born January 6, 1984 in Mallorca, Spain as Ilaria Lynn Thomas. But a couple of days after Christmas, she posted a video on Instagram where she said that there were some things that needed to be clarified, that there were some things that she had said in the past that got twisted around, and that although she was born in Boston, she is a very different kind of Bostonian in that she spent some of her childhood in Spain. When it came to her accent, she stated, there was a lot of back and forth my entire life, and I am really lucky that I grew up speaking two languages. She said that her accent varies depending on whether she's speaking English or Spanish by stating, when I try to work, I try to enunciate a little bit more, but when I get nervous or upset, then I start to mix the two. She also said that everyone calls her Ilaria. Her family calls her Ilaria, but she responds to both Hillary and Ilaria. And as far as claiming an identity that isn't hers, she admitted to being a white girl, but continued by saying Europe has lots of white people. Her family is white ethnically. She is a mix of many things, and she grew up with both cultures, and it's as simple as that. She continued with the damage control for a little bit, and this included Alec and his daughter Ireland coming to her defense, where Alec notably ranted about bigger problems that needed to be addressed than Ilaria's origin story, such as Jeffrey Epstein, whom Alec pointed out he never met ever in his entire life. But Ilaria's controversy lived on for a couple of more weeks, eventually dying down, and she ended up staying quiet on Instagram for a little more than a month before coming back with this statement, quote, I've spent the last month listening, reflecting, and asking myself how I can learn and grow. My parents raised my brother and me with two cultures, American and Spanish, and I feel a true sense of belonging to both. The way I've spoken about myself and my deep connection to two cultures could have been better explained. I should have been more clear, and I'm sorry. I am proud of the way that I was raised, and we are raising our children to share the same love and respect for both. Being vulnerable and pushing ourselves to learn and grow is what we've built our community on, and I hope to get back to the supportive and kind environment that we've built together. Ilaria's IMDb page has since changed as well. It says that she was born in Boston and is of English, Welsh, German, Scottish, Irish, Slavic, and French-Canadian descent, and that in 2020, 
her husband and stepdaughter came to her defense when social media criticized her for affecting a Spanish accent in past interviews to enhance her media image, when in reality she was born to a family of non-Spanish descent in Boston and her birth name is Hillary, not Ilaria. And as for Alec, he is of Irish, French, and English descent. So the kids that they have together, to me, have very Spanish-sounding names. Carmen Gabriela, Raphael Thomas, Leonard Angel Charles, Romeo Alejandro David, Eduardo Paul Lucas, and Maria Lucia. But yet... Not a drop of Spanish blood from either parent, which if it were me, I'd find to be kind of regrettable because now her kids are going to have to live with that. But anyway, I feel like that was a pretty big embarrassment, but it also goes to show how difficult it would be to affect a voice or an accent that isn't naturally yours and to keep it up for years. I certainly would not have been able to fake it as I was accused of. And I think both Ilaria and possibly Elizabeth Holmes here, no matter how long you do it, no matter how much you get used to it, there's always going to be those times when you let your guard down, like when you're drinking or feel particularly upset and defensive when you feel personally attacked by a comedian. In Ilaria's defense, we do know that people tend to take on the accent of the places that they are from when they've been away from that place for some time. For example, if someone is living in California and is from the New England area or from the South or the Midwest, their accent tends to mellow out a little bit after a while. But when they go back, the accent may get strong once again. For Elizabeth, it's been speculated that because she was a young woman in a field of work historically dominated by men, that she used a deeper voice in an effort to exude a sense of authority in order to be taken seriously. And that might be the same sort of effect that a person who is originally from the East Coast that's living on the West Coast might have a fluctuation in their accent. Perhaps Elizabeth experienced that same sort of fluctuation in her tone when she is around a bunch of rich, powerful Silicon Valley men. But when she's alone or drunk... She's able to tone it up a little bit, so to speak. And the article that I read in the cut also said that there have been studies that have shown that when both men and women deliberately lower their tone of their voice, it is successful for them because they do sound more powerful and dominant. But it goes on to say that it's a belief steeped in sexism. And that may very well be the case, but let's not forget that all computer voices and announcements made at the airport and things like that, all of those voices are female. And the reason for that is because according to CNN, it's easier to find a female voice that everybody likes as opposed to a male voice. So there's that and the fact that perhaps Elizabeth Holmes may have been misguided all along. And I think we're going to find that there are going to be a number of instances throughout her career that she was quite misguided. Okay, so now that we've gotten a few things about Elizabeth out of the way, let's get down to who Elizabeth really is. Maybe. Because who knows, right? 
Elizabeth was born February 3, 1984 in Washington, D.C. That makes her only 28 days younger than our Spaniard, non-Spaniard friend, Hilaria. And it seemed like from the very beginning that Elizabeth had one goal, and that was to become a billionaire. When she would say things like that before she'd even become a teenager, people may have thought that she was just a silly little girl with an impossible dream. But the fact is, is that her parents, Christian and Noel Holmes, they fostered their children's aspirations and drive for success. As they are descended from a long line of wealthy, successful entrepreneurs on her father's side of the family and a powerful military background on her mother's side. However, when it came to Elizabeth's father's side of her family, her dad didn't hide the fact that her grandfather and her great-grandfather all but squandered the immense wealth that her great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandfather built through a series of personal missteps, a series of failed marriages coupled with severe drinking problems. And Chris Holmes used his father's and grandfather's failures as a lesson for his daughter and her younger brother, Christian V, as to what not to do. But he also made sure that Elizabeth understood the tremendous wealth and the enormity of what her grandfathers before them were able to accomplish. And he wanted his children to feel that that greatness was imprinted upon them. The early part of Elizabeth's life was spent in Washington, D.C., where her dad held a number of jobs with the federal government and her mom was a staff assistant for some constituents on Capitol Hill until she had Elizabeth and her brother, then she stayed home. Early signs of Elizabeth's fierceness in business became apparent during her childhood when they would visit with her cousins and she and her brother and cousins would be playing games of Monopoly. Most of the time, Elizabeth would win but when she would lose, she'd stomp off in a rage. So she was pretty cutthroat from the get-go. By the time Elizabeth was in high school, the family had moved to Houston, Texas. Elizabeth was a bit of an awkward kid, but then who isn't? She was sort of tall and thin, and she struggled to fit in with the illustrious private school that she and her brother attended. But by the time she hit 10th grade, she was determined to maintain a 4.0 grade point average. And she did so by doing what she would go on to do in her role as CEO at Theranos. All work on minimal amounts of sleep. Elizabeth studied until she simply could not keep her eyes open any longer. She would remain a high achiever in school through graduation, and she eventually emerged from her awkward phase, blossoming into the striking woman that we have all come to know. As high school began winding down, Elizabeth decided that she wanted to attend college in California, Stanford University specifically. For someone with a vested interest in science and technology, Stanford totally made sense. And because she wanted to be a billionaire, Stanford is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from California's Silicon Valley, which was thriving with internet startups in the early 2000s. 
The list of companies that were founded or co-founded by Stanford alumni is vast. Some include Hewlett Packard, Nike, Capital One, The Gap, Trader Joe's, PayPal, Netflix, Expedia, Yahoo, Intuit, Google, Atari, LinkedIn, Instagram, OkCupid, Pandora, Logitech, Charles Schwab, Glassdoor, SpaceX, Snapchat, StubHub, YouTube, Zillow, WhatsApp, Pixar, Dolby Laboratories, and that's just a handful. Growing up, there was a period of time when the Holmes family did live in the city of Woodside, California, and one of the fathers of one of Elizabeth's childhood friends just so happened to be a venture capitalist. So she was somewhat familiar with the lay of the land. One other thing Elizabeth's parents did early on was to decide it would benefit both her and her brother tremendously if they knew how to speak Chinese. So both kids worked with their tutor once a week to learn Mandarin Chinese. And while Elizabeth was still in high school, she entered into Stanford's Mandarin Chinese language program, even though she wasn't eligible to be in the program because you needed to be an actual student to join. So the rules were bent for a young Miss Elizabeth because she was apparently already so good at speaking Chinese. The thing that you've probably heard that's been said by Elizabeth and about her is how her father really wanted to instill in her the goal of her life having purpose, meaning that he wanted her to follow in his footsteps and devote her life to public service in some capacity, whatever that may have been. He wanted her to be focused on making a difference in the world above becoming a billionaire, which was her earliest goal. So what Elizabeth ultimately saw in the field of biotechnology was the potential of not only making a difference in the world and achieving a life of purpose that her father had taught her, which was of the utmost importance to him, it was also a field that could make her filthy rich. So why not have both? When Elizabeth got to Stanford, she majored in chemical engineering, and one of her first classes was with a popular good-looking professor named Channing Robertson. But after one semester, Elizabeth was back in Houston for the holidays, where she told her family that she was contemplating dropping out of school, which was code for she's already made up her mind that she's dropping out of school. In John Kerry Rowe's book, he said that while the family was gathered around the table for Christmas dinner, Elizabeth's dad had folded up a piece of paper into an airplane and wrote the letters PhD on the wings and aimed it at his daughter, who was on the verge of going rogue. She told her dad, it's not what she wanted to do. She did not want a PhD. She wanted to earn money. And she had already made up her mind. She showed back up at school in January she visited the dorm of a young man that she had met and had been dating throughout the previous semester, and she told him that she was leaving school and was moving on from him, too. She was establishing her own company, 
and simply would not have the time for school or him. Elizabeth ended up staying enrolled in school until the fall of 2003, as she had been offered an internship in the Southeast Asian country of Singapore, where she ran diagnostics on patient swabs that were testing for the SARS virus. And if you listen back to our episodes on the Kissel brothers, I went into the whole thing about SARS, so I'm not going to go over it again. The archaic manner in which specimens were collected from people was the impetus for the direction that Elizabeth would eventually go when it came to the way that she believed that the collection of samples can and should be taken in a much more efficient manner. The first idea Elizabeth had come up with was a patch. And this patch would adhere to a patient's arm and it would have the ability to identify existing medical issues that the wearer of the patch has and at the same time would be able to treat said medical issues. Based on what Elizabeth had learned from her experiences in Singapore, along with whatever it was that she learned in her one semester at Stanford, she developed her patch over the course of five sleepless days and nights and applied for a patent for it. And when she got back to Stanford, she went straight to Channing Robertson and showed him her patch. And while this kind of technology has still yet to have been developed in almost 20 years since, Robertson did say some years later that he had never had a student that impressed him as much as Elizabeth had in all of his years of teaching and basically encouraged her to do what she needed to do in order to see her dreams come to fruition, which for her was dropping out. Elizabeth had also been working alongside another PhD student of Robertson's name, Shanak Roy, who had been working on finding the best enzymes to be used in laundry detergent formulas. And when she told Shanak of her patch idea, he was a little bit more cautious, thinking that the idea was a bit science fiction-y. However, you know, Elizabeth has just got that way about her that pizzazz or whatever you want to call it. And what do you know, Sean Ackroy finished up his degree at Stanford and officially became employee number one at Elizabeth's brand new startup. At first, things were off to kind of a rough start. Elizabeth and Shawnak had a small office on the not-so-nice side of Palo Alto, which is also known as East Palo Alto, which I had no idea such a not-nice area of Palo Alto existed. I mean, because it all looks nice. But I guess every town has the other side of the tracks, and that's where Elizabeth ended up first. In fact, Elizabeth's car window had been shot out when she was on her way to work one morning, and she was barely missed being struck by the bullet. The first name that she actually gave her startup was called Real-Time Cures, but a short time later she came up with the name Theranos. And next came the hard part, talking people into investing in her dream. One of the first people she approached was the dad of that childhood friend of hers who had made a fortune as a venture capitalist. After presenting her pitch, he went ahead and invested a million dollars in Elizabeth and Theranos. 
She then tapped some of her dad's connections from all those years working in public service in Washington, D.C., and she was able to wow people with this microbiotechnology that she had dreamt up. So this patch that Elizabeth was presenting to potential investors, she named Therapatch. It was to be stuck to the skin on your arm, and the surface area that the patch covered would be microscopically punctured with a series of microneedles that would be able to extract the tiniest samples of blood, and the whole thing was said to be completely pain-free. The patch would also be outfitted with a microchip-based diagnostic system that would be able to analyze the minute blood samples and subsequently determine which medications needed to be administered and at what amounts. The patch would then send its data wirelessly to the patient's doctor, and the doctor would be able to examine the data using its proprietary coded system. And what would happen next, I find to be somewhat of an interesting precursor of things to come, a little bit of foreshadowing more than a decade before what was going to happen eventually happened to Theranos. In the summer of 2004, Elizabeth had a meeting with a potential investment firm that specifically invested in biotechnology. Elizabeth presented her patch to the representatives of the firm, and while she was confident and she was quick and concise about her Therapatch invention and the potential impact that it could have on the manner and speed with which medical concerns are diagnosed and treated, she was challenged with regards to how she would differentiate her technology from a similar technology that was already available and being used on the market. Elizabeth was caught completely off guard with the line of questioning, and she got lost when the questions from the firm members were becoming more pointed and technical, and she ended up abruptly leaving the meeting completely flustered. And this is where I say perhaps... Elizabeth should have stayed in school a little bit longer. She was only 19 years old. And there would be several disappointments to follow. Venture capitalists that just didn't believe in her. She didn't have the proficiency to answer the hard questions and to back up what she was trying to sell. And if I'm being honest, when I saw video clips of Elizabeth's deposition some 13 years after this in 2017... I don't think much has changed in terms of her ability to answer tough questions, except maybe by 2017, she had a lot more to hide. Despite all the setbacks by late 2004, Elizabeth was able to convince a variety of people, friends, former classmates, and family to invest close to $6 million into Theranos. While Elizabeth was successful in getting people to invest, it was becoming clear to employee one, Shanak Roy, that the likelihood of them being able to squeeze all that microtechnology into an arm patch was akin to them being able to travel backwards and forwards through time in a DeLorean. There may be a theory somewhere in the universe under which this patch may work, but for them to actually develop a product that did work didn't seem feasible to Shanak. 
They decided to water Elizabeth's invention down to simply diagnosing medical concerns, but it still wasn't coming together for them. Eventually, they scrapped the whole project and decided to work on something like one of those little blood glucose testing devices, you know, where you do the finger prick and the test strip to check up on your sugar levels. Elizabeth wanted to develop a device about that size, but capable of reading more than just blood glucose. I guess with that idea, we're seeing the beginnings of the machine that was to come. Being able to test for more than blood sugar was definitely going to require a component larger than a glucose monitor. There was no doubt about that. I guess the question is, how much bigger does it have to be? And how small can it be at the same time? It's a compromise of sorts. The next incarnation of Elizabeth's machine is described in Carrie Rowe's book. It reads, the compromise was a cartridge reader system that blended the fields of microfluidics and biochemistry. The patient would prick their finger to draw a small sample of blood and place it in a cartridge that looked like a thick credit card. The cartridge would slot into a bigger machine called a reader. Pumps inside the reader would push the blood through tiny channels in the cartridge and into little wells coated with antibodies. On its way through the wells, a filter would separate the blood's solid elements from the plasma and only let the plasma through. And when the plasma came in contact with the antibodies, a chemical reaction would produce a signal that would be read and translated into results. Elizabeth's idea included this being a device that could be kept in a person's home so that they could test their own blood as needed without having to schedule a visit to the doctor. The results of the at-home test would be transmitted to the doctor's office, and with that information, the doctor would be able to adjust or fill prescriptions, essentially expediting the process. The first prototype had been completed by the end of 2005, within a year of Elizabeth's first initial significant investors coming on board, and she named it the Theranos 1.0. The company also now had 24 employees, and with their machine ready to be put through clinical trials, Elizabeth expected to be able to bring on more investors, hopefully with a lot more money. And by Christmas of 2005, Theranos was beginning to catch some media attention, having received their first mention in an article in a tech industry publication. In early 2006, Elizabeth was interested in hiring an engineer named Edmund Koo, and like most, he was very taken with Elizabeth. It was the unblinking blue eyes and the fact that they both spoke Chinese. Theranos heard about Edmund and knew that he had a solid reputation as a specialist in electronics problem solving. Elizabeth told him that her blood testing system was capable of saving more than 100,000 American lives annually. How exactly did she go from running out of an investor meeting bewildered and unglued, having been unable to stand up to a line of questioning, to being able to claim that she would be able to save 100,000 American lives every year with her blood testing machine. 
Well, Elizabeth used the example of deaths resulting from fatal drug interactions from prescription drug users. That was the statistic that she pointed to when she said that her blood testing technology would eliminate the side effects caused by drug interactions, thereby saving 100,000 lives per year. That was a very bold claim to be making, but Edmund was sold and he joined Theranos. As it turned out, Edmund's experience with electronics didn't exactly translate all that smoothly over into biomedical technology. The fact was, the machine that Elizabeth told him that could save 100,000 lives a year, the Theranos 1.0, didn't work, like, at all. It was Edmund's job to turn a glorified paperweight into a marvel of modern technology. You remember back in the day when you would go into the cell phone store, whether it was Sprint or T-Mobile or AT&T or whatever. I'm not talking about the Apple store because you know how extra they've always been. I'm talking about the regular cell phone store when they used to have those plastic, non-working models of their phones on their displays. That's basically what Edmund was given and told to turn it into something that worked. He had to take the plastic cell phone and transform it into a device that he could actually make a phone call with. Now, the problem wasn't so much that he couldn't develop a functioning device. The problem was, is that the device needed to perform a plethora of diagnostic tests on as minimal amount of a blood sample as possible. I guess Elizabeth was stuck on the glucose monitor finger prick test strip model. She had latched onto that and she would not be letting go of it ever. In fact, in Carrie Rue's book, he called Elizabeth's fixation on miniaturization an obsession. And he referenced a time when Theranos was taking part in a trade show and one of the employees purchased some red Hershey's Kisses and had the Theranos logo put on them. And this had Elizabeth really upset because the Hershey Kiss was way too large to represent the tiny droplets of blood that she wanted her company to be known for. Edmund's job became even more difficult when Elizabeth insisted that the machine's cartridge also had to be as tiny and thin as possible. He spent months trying to get the thing to be what the boss wanted. But even as they had things scaled down to the size that she wanted things, the test results themselves were exceedingly unreliable. With Elizabeth insisting on a finger prick size blood sample, the lab was going to have to water the blood down with a saline mixture in order to have more of a sample size available for testing. And remember, this mixture was supposed to flow through all of these little chambers in order for each individual blood test to be run within the device. It turned out to be an engineering nightmare when it came to all the mechanics of it. The timing of the samples going from one testing chamber to the next and for there to be no spillage happening within the machine, which would lead to contaminated samples. This testing went on for months and months. 
They were running tests using dyes to see which chambers were leaking. The insides of the machine were so complex and small in size, it was becoming a mission impossible for Edmund. And amid all of this testing and failing and testing and failing, the investment money was running dangerously low. Elizabeth had jumped the gun and spent $2 million of the initial $6 million on mechanized packaging and shipping for when their blood testing machine was ready to be sold. But Edmund was sure that they weren't even close to being ready to go to market. And then making matters worse and super inefficient, the blood cartridges that they developed to be used in the Theranos 1.0 cost about $200 each to produce, and they were single-use only. So that right there is a huge waste, especially with all the testing that they were having to do, only to not being able to get things right. And as we know, they never would. Elizabeth managed to bilk investors, I mean convince investors, out of another $9 million in a second round of fundraising for Theranos. Edmund and his engineering team also weren't getting along all that swimmingly with the biochemistry team, but it was an environment made challenging due to the manner in which Elizabeth managed things. She didn't want the various departments within Theranos to communicate directly with one another. Instead, she was like the gatekeeper for the flow of information. If the engineers needed to communicate something to the biochemists, that information needed to go through Elizabeth first, who would then in turn relay that information to where it needed to go. It was an effort on her part to be the only person who knew what the big picture was that was being created when all of the puzzle pieces were assembled together. And to me, that is a huge indicator as to just how in the know Elizabeth actually was in everything Theranos related. Here, under no uncertain terms, we are being told that all things Theranos pass through her first. Remember, in Elizabeth's 2017 deposition, she answered, I don't know, during questioning more than 600 times. So let's ruminate on those lies for a little bit, shall we? Anyway, because of the scenic route the lines of communication had been on all this time, Edmund was unable to sort through the issues that they were having with the blood testing machine. He didn't know if the problem was on his end or if it was a problem with the biochemists. But even if Elizabeth had allowed for a more direct line of communication between departments, the one thing Edmund was certain of, in order for the machine to run all the types of diagnostics that Elizabeth wanted, they were going to need larger samples of blood. But Elizabeth was adamant. One finger prick droplet and not a nanoliter more. It probably goes without saying that Edmund's progress was slow. So Elizabeth decided that she was going to expand the engineering department's hours to operate around the clock, 
24 hours. In order to pick up the pace of the blood testing machine's development, they were simply going to have to eliminate sleep. And Edmund was like, dude, Elizabeth, it doesn't take a pseudoscientist like yourself to understand that people aren't going to be functioning at their best on zero sleep. And Elizabeth was like, just invent the ability for humans to work without sleep and let me know when it's ready, okay? It also probably goes without saying that the turnover rate at Theranos was pretty high, though it was kept hush-hush around the water cooler. And it wasn't just the sleepless humans that Elizabeth kept in the various departments. They were coming and going at the executive level as well. The only thing the employees had to go on were rumors because they were never told of anyone's departure. They were never told when someone new was coming in. So it brought about a whole other level of stress for the work environment. Like people are being banished into some secret pit in the bowels of the building or something. They were there one day and then gone the next, never to be heard from again. Anyway, Edmund protested keeping the engineering department working 24 hours a day. He told Elizabeth, it's the quickest way to burn his people out. She responded that it didn't matter. The only thing that did matter was Theranos. All Edmund could do is shrug and attribute it to Elizabeth's unyielding drive, he supposed. He knew that she never slept more than four hours a night, and her main source of sustenance were chocolate-covered coffee beans. Anyway, as stubborn as Edmund had sized Elizabeth up to being, he did know that there was a little someone special in her life. A guy. An older guy. And he didn't really know all that much about him, but he knew enough to know that they were canoodling. He also knew that this guy was from India and that his name was Sonny and that he was really rich. Elizabeth and Sonny met when she was still a high school student studying Mandarin in China. He was and is 19.5 years older than Elizabeth and their paths would cross again as his work was based in the Silicon Valley and before long, so would Elizabeth's. Their relationship turned romantic sometime between 2003 and 2005. It depends on what source you're looking at. And he would not join Theranos, however, until 2009 as its chief operating officer. In the 1990s, Sonny worked for a couple of software companies before he co-founded CommerceBid, which is an e-commerce developer meaning they were a company that helped other companies conduct their buying and selling in the brand new internet market, the booming internet market. The company was bought out by Commerce One and Sonny floated over to that company for a short period of time. And either he saw the implosion of the dot-com bubble coming or he got very, very lucky because he sold his shares of Commerce One cashed out about $40 million right before the company collapsed. Sonny had earned an MBA from Berkeley in 2003, and then he went on to graduate school at Stanford for four years. But I guess he decided in 2008 that it would be like so cute if both he and Elizabeth both were dropouts of Stanford. And like I said, a year later, he would join up with Theranos. 
But Edmund became aware of him when Elizabeth had gotten sloshed at their 2006 employee holiday party, and she called Sonny to give her drunk ass a ride home. That's when he figured out that she was shacking up with this old Indian dude. We'll come to find out that Elizabeth had some kind of special way with older guys, not just Sonny. In her second round of investors, she managed to reel in Don Lucas and Larry Ellison. Don Lucas was a large investor in Oracle, among a dozen other startups. He actually wasn't all that old, but he is dead as of January 28th, 2020. As for Larry Ellison, he's 77 years old, and from the pictures I've seen of him online, he looks like he's had lots and lots of work done, so he still looks 77, just he looks like a 77-year-old that's had a little nip and a little tuck and some spray tan and some hair plugs. He's one of the wealthiest human beings on the planet, and he actually owns one of the Hawaiian islands, apparently. Didn't know that was a thing. Interestingly enough, it's difficult to find out exactly how much Larry Ellison actually invested in Theranos, but because the second round of funding had netted only $9 million, and the only reason I'm saying only is because the dude is reportedly worth $123 billion today, so I'd say he kind of cheaped out when it came to Theranos, but anyway. He was also involved with Oracle, that's how he knew Don Lucas, and back in those days, He himself was a little bit of a fibber when it came to the abilities of the software that the company was developing at the time and had begun sending out. Those versions were full of glitches. He may have been able to get away with it when it came to computer software. You can send out fixes and issue updated versions 2.0, 3.0, etc., etc. But when it comes to medical devices and people's lives, There is no version 2.0. It's been suggested that perhaps not only was Elizabeth looking to these old men for their money, but also for their shady business practices. But anyway, as I was talking about Edmund a few moments ago, he would eventually tell Elizabeth that working around the clock was a hard pass. And after that, things became very icy between the two of them. Once Edmund made the decision to not go along with Elizabeth's sleep deprivation work model, she fired back by hiring a whole new engineering team with whom Edmund had zero communication with. They weren't meant to supplement his team and their department. They were meant to create a brand new development team for what Elizabeth was turning into her own personal version of the squid game. These were meant to be dueling engineering teams And whoever got to the finish line first with an actual functioning blood machine wins while the other team gets thrown into the banishment pit. And you know what it feels like is going on here with Edmund? It's kind of like he's in some sort of crazy version of a Super Mario Brothers game. He's doing everything that he can to save the princess's blood box. Meanwhile, Elizabeth a.k.a. Bowser, is lobbing mega hammers and Bowser bombs at him. 
For example, Elizabeth managed to reach an agreement with the pharmaceutical company Pfizer to participate in a pilot program with the Theranos blood testing system in the state of Tennessee. And the thing is, it's not even close to working right. So here comes yet another mega hammer and bomb flying straight at Edmund. I mean, does Elizabeth think that if she just keeps ratcheting up the pressure that someone will just magically get something to work right? That if she just sits there at her executive desk in her ergonomic chair and simply will things to happen, that they'll just happen, click her heels together and poof, a blood box that actually works? Sorry, honey, this ain't Oz and you ain't Dorothy and one thing's for certain, you're probably going to need a wizard to get that machine of yours to work properly. So this trip to Nashville, Tennessee was scheduled for August of 2007. So Edmund needed to channel his inner wizard, apparently, to make all of this happen in time. The plan was to deliver the Theranos 1.0 machine into homes. The patients were going to test their blood on a daily basis and from there, the results of those tests would be transmitted to Theranos' headquarters in California. The tests would be analyzed there in Theranos labs and the results would be sent to Pfizer. Again, this is Elizabeth being the gatekeeper of the flow of information. She was going to be able to control what Pfizer received and what they didn't receive. And that is very troubling. And not surprisingly, they weren't ready when they got there. Elizabeth apparently couldn't grasp a notion that Edmund was not the owner of a magic wand. When they arrived in Nashville, the equipment that they brought with them was not working at all. And Edmund stayed up the entire night, taking everything apart, putting it all back together again. Enough times he did it to get it to function, just barely to get past this phase of the pilot program. The next day, they took blood samples from eight people at a local oncology clinic. Six doctors and nurses who worked there and two patients, both of them terminally ill with cancer. As Edmund took the blood samples from the two cancer patients, it was clear that they were near death. So when they arrived back in California and Elizabeth is gleefully announcing in a company email that the trip to Nashville was a huge win for Theranos and that everybody needed to get up and make the victory lap around the complex, Edmund can barely stomach it. He knew that the blood testing system was far from being ready to be used in any capacity on the market. It was hardly reliable by any stretch of the imagination. And to know that they were using this useless machine on the terminally ill, it was nothing that Edmund ever thought that he had signed up for when he joined Team Theranos. By this time, it was the late summer of 2007. Theranos, by then, had more than 70 employees on staff. So despite all of this, they are still growing. It wasn't too long after the trip to Nashville that there was a bit of a shakeup at Theranos. Remember, this is 2007, so it's more than 14 years ago from today. 
employees received an email that an impromptu meeting was being called outside Elizabeth's office. Clearly, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth of Theranos was not happy as she stood there next to her attorney, Michael Esquivel. One of Elizabeth's biggest concerns, if not her biggest, was for Theranos' trade secrets and intellectual property to be stolen, which is understandable. We know by now that nothing gets past Elizabeth, and now that it has, she's ready to make some heads roll. I did not know this, but it wasn't just Theranos employees who were made to sign non-disclosure agreements, but it was anybody who entered the building or conducted any kind of business within the company that had to. So, if you so much as stopped in to use the bathroom, you signed an NDA. What triggered this dust-up? Let me explain. So at the meeting, everybody was told that there were three former employees who were being sued for doing that very thing that Elizabeth had worried so much about, taking Theranos' intellectual property in an attempt to launch another startup. The three were Michael O'Connell, Chris Todd, and John Howard. They all had significant roles in the development of the Theranos 1.0 blood testing machine and the cartridge. Everyone was told that they were not to speak, text, email, or otherwise communicate in any way, shape, or form with any of them. But the one thing that surprised everyone was the fact that the attorney, Michael Esquivel, told them that they'd even gone so far as to contact the FBI about this case and that they were going to be looking into it. It kind of made people feel a little unnerved. As they stood there listening, things started to make some sense. Why certain employees were there one day and then gone the next. Remember, friendships had been formed, so it was likely that current Theranos employees were still maintaining relationships with the former employees. So finding out that they were using company technology to launch their own business and seeing people suddenly vanishing started to make some sense. What they were doing wasn't exactly what Theranos was doing, but it was basically some of the same principles. But instead of the blood testing being administered to humans, their technology that they were trying to develop was to be used by veterinarians on animals. It was Michael O'Connell's idea to begin with, and he convinced Chris Todd to go in on this venture with him. And he had also spoken to John Howard about it as well, but he wasn't in on it. He said no, he wasn't interested. But just the fact that O'Connell had even spoken to him was enough for him to be named in the Theranos lawsuit which for those who knew him felt bad because John Howard was one of the very first to reach out and help Elizabeth when she decided to drop out of Stanford and to start Theranos, even going so far as to opening up his own home to her before she had any place in the Silicon Valley to go to work and do testing and experiments in his house. John Howard never even said that he would join his former colleagues to start this new company. He turned them down, but it didn't matter. Elizabeth found a way to name him in her lawsuit too, despite his early support of her. 
They named their company Advinostics. And while they spent some time trying to sell their idea to potential investors, they weren't able to raise any capital, so they threw in the towel. But O'Connell didn't want to walk away empty-handed. Either that or it was just pure greed, but either way, he ended up reaching out to Elizabeth, asking her if she was interested in their animal blood testing system. It wasn't a good idea. Not at all. When she got that email from him, it was exactly why she has everyone sign the agreements. And I imagine companies are protective over their products. I mean, Coca-Cola doesn't want anybody knowing their recipes. Lucille Ball didn't want anyone knowing that she wasn't a natural redhead. Fun fact, it didn't come out until 2001, according to Lucille's hairstylist. And this was one of Hollywood's best kept secrets, apparently. That Lucille was a natural brunette. And she used to use normal hair dye, but she was unsatisfied with the colors that were out there. So at some point, she had met some rich Arabian sheik who suggested that she try henna dye, which she did, and she loved it. The sheik said that he would send her enough henna to last her her lifetime, which he did, and the stylist kept it locked in a safe. Her hairstylist traveled everywhere with her and kept her hair perfectly curled and dyed at all times. As henna is all natural, there's no chemicals in it. So it's not only easy on the hair, it also conditions it very well. And it works on treating and preventing dandruff. So it's like an all-in-one solution to all your hair problems. But anyway, that was like way off topic. The point is, Elizabeth kept very strict control over everything that went on in and around Theranos at all times. She was vigilant about it. But following this issue with these three former employees, security was going to be tighter than ever. According to Carrie Rowe's book, the lockdown caused everyone to feel as though their every move, every word, every keystroke was being monitored. If you so much as inserted a thumb drive into your computer and the head of IT wasn't made aware of it first, you were gone immediately into the banishment pit. Elizabeth's lawsuit against Michael O'Connell, Chris Todd, and John Howard was eventually dropped when O'Connell said that he would sign his patents over for the animal blood testing technology to Theranos. And while all of this was going on, Edmund was still dealing with his engineering team in a fight to the death with the new engineering team being headed up by former Logitech employee Tony Nugent. And things were going even more contentious between Edmund and Tony. Tony actually replaced a consultant that Theranos had brought on who only after five months was certain what Elizabeth was trying to do. Mary microfluidics and blood diagnostics and that it was not possible because there was no way to get accurate results from such a minuscule amount of blood. He was fired after only five months. Tony felt like it could be done, but not by human hands, but rather robotics. But instead of building one of his own, Tony purchased a $3,000 glue robot from a company out in New Jersey. That's right, glue. The robot was an automatic glue dispenser. So Tony tinkered with the thing, 
to have it work with tiny, tiny amounts of liquid and basically designed it to do the job of a chemist. He and his team downsized the robot so that it would fit inside the blood testing machine. Carrie Rue's book goes into all sorts of details on how this thing automated everything inside the box for the blood to be run through the machine, to mix with a series of antibodies, to run the diagnostics on the blood for patients. You know what the idea is. And by the fall of 2007, Tony Nugent apparently had a rudimentary version of this machine that was allegedly more reliable and less bulky than the machine that Edmund had been toiling over for several years by then. This is the machine that Elizabeth decided to name after famous American inventor Thomas Edison, the grandfather of faking it till you make it, apparently. According to an article on LinkedIn.com, Edison sold a series of lies and half-truths as he claimed the issues he'd been having with his light bulb invention had been solved. Yet it took another four years before the thing actually worked. Elizabeth was no longer going with Edmund's microfluidic system. Instead, they were going to move forward with the fully automated Edison version of the blood diagnostic testing system. In November of 2007, Edmund was laid off. And in order to receive his severance, he needed to sign two NDAs, non-disclosure and non-disparagement. So not only could he not talk about Theranos, he couldn't talk shit about them either, which is kind of a bummer because I'm sure he had plenty to disparage. He was escorted to his office. He grabbed what he could and taken off the property. Employee one, Sean Roy, ended up giving Edmund a ride home that morning. As it turned out, he didn't drive to work that day, so he was kind of stranded. Now that Theranos was throwing everything behind a converted glue robot, Shawnak was starting to feel like this was a step backwards. He had been working with the company for more than three years by then, and this was definitely not what he thought Elizabeth had envisioned for the company that he basically founded with her, at least alongside her. He decided to tell her that he was going to continue his education which she accepted, and they ended up parting on much better terms than most. Shawnak wasn't banished into the basement pit of former employees, but rather Elizabeth celebrated his time with the company, sending him off with a party on his last day. And true to form, Elizabeth began getting more enthusiastic about the Edison, a bit more prematurely than Tony Nugent was ready for. This machine was far from being the humankind-changing technology that Elizabeth had spent all this time touting it as being. It was still the only one in existence at the time, and Elizabeth was taking it everywhere with her, like it was her child. So Tony wasn't even really able to work on it as efficiently as he wanted to because he knew it wasn't exactly as ready as Elizabeth seemed to think or want to think that it was. He wasn't even sure if it was safe, and it wasn't anywhere close to being their polished, finished device. But Elizabeth was already out of the starting gate, 
whether everyone else was ready or not. It's been fairly well documented that Elizabeth Holmes had a deep admiration for deceased Apple CEO Steve Jobs. The year Elizabeth had her glue robot blood box thingy, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone to the world. In an article in Inc.com, when Steve gave his keynote presentation of the iPhone, what he was telling us sounded too good to be true. Kind of like Elizabeth's micro technology. The difference is the iPhone was good and it was true. As for the Edison, well, we all know how that played out, but it didn't stop her from calling the Edison the iPod of healthcare. And everyone was going to have one, just like everyone was going to have an Apple product in their home and in their pocket. In the summer of 2007, Elizabeth was able to begin wooing Apple employees over to Theranos, including Anna Ariola, who took part in designing the iPhone. According to Carrie Rue, Anna was told that they would be building a disease map of each person through Theranos blood testing. The company would then be able to reverse engineer illnesses like cancer with mathematical models that would crunch the blood data and predict the evolution of tumors. I took that passage straight from the book because there is no other way of saying how science fiction-y that all sounds to me. Maybe it can be done, maybe it can't, I don't know. Clearly, I'm not a biomedical technician. But with a glorified robot inside of an aluminum box at that point in time, I'm not seeing anything remotely groundbreaking. But when you're sitting at a trendy Palo Alto cafe across from the hypnotically deep voice and blinkless stare from young blue eyes, she just has this way of drawing people in. We would see her do this over and over again, not just to Apple employees who are probably kicking themselves right now for leaving one of the most iconic, groundbreaking, and valuable companies in the history of the world to go to Theranos, but to also eventually be able to talk people into sinking hundreds of millions of dollars into the company as well. That was Elizabeth's superpower. Anna's job would be to design the finished, polished look of the Edison, Something, of course, Apple is famous for with its more than 72,000 patents. Elizabeth wanted the Edison to look minimalistically sharp with a two-toned outer case and a touchscreen control panel. The initial design was a beautifully sleek black and white outer case, but it was very difficult to build out of sheet metal. The first incarnations of it did hide the robot inside, but it didn't mask the noise that the robot made. But they would get to that if they could. The most important thing was the look. Everything else at this point was secondary. It had to be a beautiful machine that people would want to set up inside their house. Anna also decided that Elizabeth needed to change up her overall look as well. For some reason, Elizabeth dressed kind of frumpy, 
and apparently wore Christmas sweaters more often than she should be, meaning outside of the month of December. And this was about the time that Elizabeth began opting for sleek black slacks and Steve Jobs' signature black turtlenecks, often paired with a black blazer, usually a touch of makeup, a relatively natural look, along with muted red or brown lipsticks. And with Anna's help, the image was set. Elizabeth was poised to change the world. At the very least, she looked like she was. Before long, other recruits from Apple's design department made their way to Theranos, including Justin Maxwell, Aaron Moore, and Mike Bowerly. They were going to be working on designing the software and the packaging, another thing that has set Apple apart. The way every one of their products is packaged, it's very distinctive, but simple, but also very attractive. The look, the feel. I like the packaging of products, whether it's electronics or makeup. It's a huge part of getting the consumer to want to purchase your products. As it were, it didn't take very long for the same issues Edmund had to come up with the newer employees. But because of the tight security resulting from the fear of stolen intellectual property, there was literally no communication between departments or even between employees. Direct messaging capabilities were blocked within the company, and the way that IT handled it all made something that would normally take only a few minutes take several hours instead. It was super inefficient, and it held up everybody's productivity. Justin began feeling that Theranos' priority had become preventing people from breaking rules as opposed to working on technology that would change the world. The employees also felt like their every move was being watched and Elizabeth was being kept abreast of every single thing that went on in every nook and cranny of the building it became common knowledge that it wasn't only Elizabeth's IT security staff reporting things to her, but her assistants and even her friends were doing the same thing. If a Theranos employee posted something on social media, it got back to Elizabeth. So yeah, when I hear stuff like that, the only thing that keeps running through my mind are the 600 plus I don't know answers that Elizabeth gave at her deposition right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. One of Elizabeth's executive assistant's sole purpose was to track when each employee arrived at work, when they went on break, and when they left for the day. Elizabeth wanted her staff to stay at work for as long as possible, to put in as much overtime as they could in order to get the Edison where it needed to be. Dinner was offered to those who stayed late every afternoon, but it actually didn't show up at the office until the early evening, so employees would often be stuck there waiting for dinner, and then they'd have to be there for a couple more hours late into the night. The employees remained troubled still by the large and fast employee turnover. That hadn't changed, and it never would. There had to be a reason behind it. It's not hard to imagine the stress of wondering if, when, how, and why someone ends up on the chopping block. 
Also, like Edmund before him, Aaron was bothered by the fact that testing had been conducted on terminally ill cancer patients in those clinical studies the year before in Nashville. He knew that the machine wasn't reliable then, and while the new Edison was somewhat of an improvement and that's debatable, he still didn't think it was ready to be tested on people. But Elizabeth went forward with it, and even then, a year later, they weren't close to being ready yet. And because of the way Elizabeth compartmentalizes the departments within Theranos, there was literally zero communication between the engineers and the chemists. So they actually had no idea how the machine was functioning as a whole. Anna had no clue until speaking to Aaron that the machine wasn't ready to be on the market. Remember, she's in the design department. How would she know, right? Unless they had these types of conversations outside of work, which they were because they sometimes carpooled and it was really the only place that they could communicate with one another freely. This is the point in the story when we're going to be introduced to a name that we've heard a lot if you've been listening to podcasts about this case, and his name is Avi Tavanian. He used to work at Apple. He had been pretty good friends with Steve Jobs for a long time, and he was the one who set Anna up to meet with Elizabeth. Avi had made enough with Apple to retire after 10 years, but he came out of retirement to work at Theranos. He was on their board and he had purchased $1.5 million in stock in late 2006. Elizabeth was enamored with Avi's connection to Steve. So anyway, Anna reached out to Avi to discuss what she had found out about terminal cancer patients being used to test a machine that wasn't working reliably. And Avi was kind of like, yeah, I'm concerned about the direction the company is going to which was kind of like nowhere. And he also began to notice things that weren't quite right by the third and fourth board meeting that he attended. Elizabeth kept talking about how great things were going, how they were making deals left and right, but the money wasn't coming in. And when he began asking questions or wanted to see some of the deals that they had made, she would tell him that, oh, she didn't have the paperwork with her blah, blah, blah. And also, the rollout of the Edison was always met with one delay after another for one reason after another. It was shortly after this time, another big issue arose that concerned Avi, aside from the rollout that never rolled. This had to do with the creation of a foundation. You may have heard a little something about this. So Elizabeth wanted to launch a foundation and she wanted the board of directors to grant Theranos stocks to fund it. Don Lucas, who we mentioned earlier as being one of the investors who was also on the board, it was clear that he had quite an affinity for Elizabeth. You might have heard this analogy spoken about this previously, especially since Elizabeth's favorite victims were older men. She was like a granddaughter to Don Lucas. I don't know. I don't think he was old enough to be a grandfather, but maybe like a daughter. He was totally on board with granting the stocks for the foundation. But Avi, he didn't like the idea. 
because the way corporations work, and I don't know this from firsthand experience, I only know this because I read it, but it would give Elizabeth much more power when it came to the voting amongst the board members. To object to the formation of a foundation was only meant to protect the interest of the shareholders. So Avi's objection to this upset Elizabeth a lot. A couple of weeks later, Don Lucas wanted to meet with him so that he could tell him how upset she was, that she didn't like the way that he was acting, and she wanted him off the board of directors. Don told Avi, you could resign. He said he would take some time to think it over. Looking back, he realized that the executives that were there a year earlier were all gone by then and nothing about the company was what he expected it to be. So these developments that were going on with Avi, he shared some of it with Anna and she was pretty high strung. That was her personality type. So she was worried. And Anna was having her own difficulties with Elizabeth as she was quickly learning that her boss did not like to be told that something could not be done, which Anna had to do on occasion. Again, Elizabeth seemed to expect Theranos to just magically come together if she just demanded it to hard enough. Anna also didn't like how secretive everything was. It didn't make for an environment that fostered teamwork. She had told Elizabeth that she thought it would be a good idea to put the clinical study in Tennessee on the back burner while they worked out all of the issues that they'd been having with the Edison. It simply wasn't reliable enough to be used on patients yet. Elizabeth shot that idea down with a quickness. Every single drug company was chomping at the bit for her machine and this machine was going to put Theranos on the map and if Anna didn't like it, if she didn't share that vision, then maybe she needed to rethink the direction that she wanted to go in her own professional life. After thinking it over for a few hours, Anna decided that moving ahead with a clinical trial on terminally ill cancer patients was a severe ethical violation. And Avi being asked to resign from the board, those two things together were enough for Anna to pen her letter of resignation. Elizabeth wasn't there when she left, so she sent her an email letting her know. Elizabeth asked Anna to give her a call, but Anna was finished with both Elizabeth and Theranos for good. She never spoke to Elizabeth again. In the meantime, Avi was ready to have a sit down with Don Lucas and break down all the things wrong with Theranos and the manner in which Elizabeth had been conducting herself and her business. He had a year's worth of documentation to show Don that things aren't what they seem. And while the issues can be addressed and they could work through them, they would not be able to the way that Elizabeth was running things and further suggested that they needed to bring in a management team capable of doing what he believed Elizabeth was incapable of. Don told Avi to resign and Avi said, okay, I will. But Don had something else that he wanted to talk about. Employee number one, Sean Roy, was leaving and was selling his shares of Theranos stock to Elizabeth 
at a really super good discount that she negotiated. But in order to do that, the board needed to vote to allow her to do it. And just like with the foundation, Avi did not think that that was a good idea, but he was going to resign. So just go vote on it however they wanted to without him. And then Don was like, well, there's one more thing. He needed Avi to waive his rights to purchase Shanak's shares. At this point, Avi was starting to get really aggravated with this whole thing. He could see how Elizabeth was trying to manipulate everything and everybody. So because he had just as much right as everybody else on the board to purchase those shares at that discount, Avi was like, you know what? I want to buy the shares that I'm entitled to buy at that discounted rate. Needless to say, it turned into a months-long email war between Don and Avi. So finally, Elizabeth sent in her attorney, Michael Esquivel, to try and intimidate Avi in an effort to put an end to the whole thing once and for all. He threatened to sue Avi for breach of contract and for violating the non-disparagement agreement. Avi was really taken aback. He had not breached or violated anything, and throughout his entire career, this was the very first time anyone had ever threatened to sue him. He had a solid reputation and was really known as a decent guy in the Silicon Valley and had never had a problem with anyone he'd ever worked with or for. After the call from Elizabeth's attorney, which came in on Christmas Eve of 2007, Avi attempted to speak to the other members on the Theranos board, but nobody was willing to talk to him. After spending some time doing a bit of soul searching as to what would be best and easiest for him to do for himself, Avi decided that the last thing that he wanted was to own any more stock in Theranos. Because of his time at Apple, he was definitely worth more than Theranos, so the threats and whatnot really didn't faze him. He went ahead and signed the papers that Don Lucas wanted him to sign and the waivers and everything. And according to Carrie Rue's book, he ended his letter with this. I do hope that you will fully inform the rest of the board as to what has happened here. They deserve to know that by not going along 100% with the program, they risk retribution from the company slash Elizabeth. Warmly, Avi Tavanian. Okay, dreamers, I want to thank you as always for listening to this episode of California Dreaming. I am going to try to not let too much time pass between episodes since I know there are those of you out there that like to binge. But this is quite a story to work through. And while there are some really good podcasts out there on this case, even one by the actual author himself, there always seems to be different information, no matter how many times that you think you've heard a story. So your feedback, your comments and your questions are, of course, welcome. You can find the show on the various social medias, request to join the Facebook discussion group. Follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. You can email me directly at 
californiapod at gmail.com, which incidentally is the email that you can also use to make a donation to our treat fund for the puppies. You can also direct message me wherever you can find me on social media. I am going to California, I think. Okay, so what day is today? This is Wednesday night. I'm going on Friday, I believe, um, to go visit my daughter and my mom, try and figure out what's going on with her. If you're in the discussion group, you may or may not know that she's been in the hospital since New Year's Day. She's tried checking herself out once, but ended up having to be taken right back about an hour later. <sighs> that poor hospital staff having to deal with her not listening and beds filling up because of COVID. So my mom was stuck in the ER or wherever they could stick her. But anyway, I haven't forgotten about January's Patreon. And I actually might possibly be able to squeeze out the second part of this before I go. I have an episode on Patreon, though, that I am in the middle of. So I have to decide what I'm going to do next. I'm not quite sure. Don't worry, though. Those are my priorities. And I think that's about it for right now. Again, thank you all for listening, for the love and the support. I'll catch you back here again soon for the next part of the series. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>